Right, if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, please. Luke chapter 5, and by the grace of God, we'll finish the chapter this morning. Luke 5, and we'll be preaching starting from verse 33, but I'm just going to read the end of the chapter there, verse 39, to begin with, and we'll have a word of prayer. Luke 5 and verse 39, Jesus ends His response to a question about whether or not they should fast. He ends it with this in verse 39, No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, The old is better. And I think that verse encapsulates very well the thought of the entire passage, and that is things must change. And that's what I'd like to preach about for a few minutes this morning. Things must change. So if you would bow your heads with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. We've already had a chance to rejoice in the singing and especially that that song that the ladies sang. We thank you so much for standing up for us and justifying us. Lord, it was an act of mercy and grace. We did not earn that. We didn't deserve it. We thank you, uh, the power of your blood to wash away all, all of our sins. Lord, when you came, you changed everything. And uh, help us this morning to let that truth sink in. And Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach, prepare all of our hearts to let the seed fall deep, deep down into it so it can bring forth fruit in due time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus says in verse 39 that once you've drunk that old wine and that's what you're used to, it's just not natural to desire the new. The old is better, he says. Why? Because that's what you've always had. You're used to it. And I think this is, a, this is not a South African thing. It's not an American thing. It's a human thing. We are prone to getting stuck in our ways, are we not? The old way, the way I've always done it, is better because I'm used to it. It's because everybody else around me is doing it that way. That's what we've always done. We uh, we'd get stuck in our way of thinking. That's why people say the hardest part of learning is unlearning. The first step to really learning something new, especially as you become an adult, this is why it's so much easier to get saved while you're young. Get saved, get discipled while your brain is still being formed. <laughs> they say, you know, by the time you reach your early 20s, then your brain is finally set. You know, it doesn't, doesn't change much after that as far as the physiology of it. So get saved and get, get all the good stuff in there while you're young. The older you get, the harder it is to change. Because we're going to say the old is better. It's worked for me this, this far. It gets more and more difficult to humble yourself and say, you know what, maybe... For the last 30 years, I've had it wrong. Maybe the way I've done it for the last 40 years isn't as good as the way Jesus has come to teach me to do it. It takes a lot of humility to admit your shortcomings in understanding and practice. And I think that's the prevailing thought that Jesus is going to communicate here. So let's go back to verse 33, and we'll see how things must change. In verse 33, they said unto him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? Jesus, why are your disciples acting differently than the other religious crowds? Why are your disciples behaving in this way? Is it something you've taught them to do? 
Because John's disciples, they fast and pray. The Pharisees' disciples likewise. And as as best we can tell, when you read in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, it looks like there were disciples of both factions. Some of John's men were there, and some of the Pharisees' disciples were also there. And they're just asking, why is it that your disciples are doing this differently? And guys, that's what's going to happen as we follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're going to stick out, especially amongst the sinners of the world, but even amongst the religious community, perhaps the way you grew up in whatever church church or religious system you grew up, things might have to change after you get saved. Maybe mom and dad or an uomaritani or somebody else in your life would go, you know what, we taught you different when you were growing up. Why all of a sudden now are you acting differently? And Jesus' response in verse number 34, he saith unto them, he said unto them, can, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, that's an excellent question. Why would you be fast? Fasting is something you do when you're generally in a time of mourning, when you're in a time of great need. There's sadness, there's weeping, there's prayer going on because you desperately need God to do something. He says, guys, on the day of somebody's wedding, if the bridegroom is there, This is a time of joy and feasting, not of fasting. In verse 35, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Notice what makes all the difference in our behavior. What would make the difference if we should or should not fast? Our position with Jesus. If He is here, right, we're not fasting. But if He's gone away, then that changes. Everything hinges on Jesus. Isn't that a great thought to go home with? I mean, we could stop the sermon right there. Everything hinges on Him. Because if you're right with Him and wanting to walk with Him, and if He's the end goal, then that kind of shapes all of your decisions, behaviors. There's your answer. Why are the disciples of John and the Pharisees acting differently? Because they, are, they, they don't have that right relationship with Christ yet. They don't recognize Him as the Messiah whereas the disciples of Christ do. Can I ask you to hold your place here? Come to Zechariah chapter 7. If you're not sure where that's at, come to Matthew and then go two books back. Zechariah chapter 7. You can hold Luke 5. We'll be right back to it. But I want to give you just a little bit of background as to why they were asking this question about fasting. Now, the disciples of John... I would assume that they were fasting because John had been preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that the Messiah was about to show up, and he, they, they were probably fasting and praying that God would prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah when he showed up. Some of John's disciples did eventually become followers of Christ, but as you can see right there in that passage, not all of them did. You even read into the book of Acts, chapter 19, people were still following the teachings of John the Baptist, not realizing that Jesus was the Christ. So some of John's disciples are still in this preparatory mode where we're we're excited, the Messiah is about to come, but we need to repent. We need to have broken hearts, and the people around us need to get right. So they're still in this time of mourning and sadness, preparing the way for the Messiah. And then the Pharisees, why were they fasting? Well, their fast goes way back five, six hundred years. The people of Israel had been fasting in the fourth month, in the fifth month, in the seventh month, and in the tenth month, as you're going to see. 
And every time Nebuchadnezzar sent somebody to destroy Jerusalem, the Jews would go into a time of fasting. And as a commemoration of this destruction of Jerusalem, every year they would fast on those days to say, God, oh, please look at how bad we have it. Look at how, how much we're suffering, God. And it became a tradition. Now, just to bring it home for you a little bit, I'm going to read you in Zechariah where these traditions came from, but I want to make it personal for you. How many things have you done in your religious life simply because everybody else does it? Think about the religious motions you go through almost on a weekly, monthly basis. How much of that is just because, well, that's what I've always done? How many times do people go through those motions not really knowing, why do we do this? What's the deciding factor? What's the end goal of doing this? Or am I doing it simply because we've always done it? We are set in this way. You don't have any bad intentions. It's just the only thing you know. Now watch in Zechariah. Forgive me, we're going to read quite quickly here. I'm going to take you through the entire chapter. Zechariah 7. This is not a chapter we spend a lot of time in, so this is our chance. Zechariah 7 and verse 1, it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu. When they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and Regemelech and their men to pray before the Lord. So you see what's happening. The Jews have just come back from their exile in Babylon, and now they're trying to get things going with God again. So they're in the temple, they're praying, but they got a question. And they're going to go to the prophet and to the priest and say, hey, should we continue doing what we were doing for the last 70 years? Is that still necessary? Verse 3, and to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets saying, should I weep in the fifth month separating myself as I have done these so many years? Now this weeping you're going to see is connected to this fast that they did in the fifth month. In verse 4, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priest, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth month, or in the fifth and in the seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? God is asking the people, Hey, when you went through that religious tradition for the last 70 years, did you do it because I told you to do it? Because I never told you to do it. I never told you to do that stuff. He's questioning their motives. Do you see how this can apply to us today? There are a lot of religious ritual we go through. We do it, but do you know why we do it? And when you do it, are you doing it unto Him? Because you might be doing the right thing, but doing it mindlessly, heartlessly, and you're not doing it unto the Lord. Verse 6, And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? It says you guys were fasting out of self-pity. You did it so that the people around you would go, oh, shame, poor Jews. Oh, you're going through, oh, you're, you've been so persecuted and so, oh, you've had it so bad. They were fasting and making a show of it so that people would recognize them. When they ate, they didn't eat and thank God and use that energy they got from the food to serve the Lord. They did it for themselves. What did Paul say in Corinthians? Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. These are good questions. He goes on in verse 7. God says, Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets, 
when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her, when men inhabited the south and the plain. He says, you guys got a question about should we continue this fasting that we've been doing for 70 years? Why don't you go back and read your Bible? That's his answer. Go back and, and look at what the prophet said three or four hundred years ago when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity. That's back in the days of Solomon. That's 700 years before this. 600 years before this. Men were preaching and telling the people, here's what God wants you to do. And the people of Israel paid no attention to what God's men were saying. They said, we will make up a couple religious rituals and that'll be enough. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother and oppress not the widow nor the fatherless the stranger nor the poor and let none of you imagine e uh, imagine evil against his brother in your heart that's a summation of what the prophets were telling the jewish people to do in verse 11 but they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear these are grown men. <laughs> Can you imagine? Why? Because, listen, we know what to do. We've been doing it this way for almost a thousand years already. We're fine. You don't need to come in and tell us anything, anything new. Don't try to change us. They pulled away the shoulder. They stopped their ears. Verse 12, Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone. They made their hearts that way. God didn't make it that way. They made their hearts as an adamant stone. Why? Listen, they were unwilling to change. They would not accept anyone telling them that the way they've been doing it for 70 years or 700 years, we couldn't possibly have been doing it wrong this whole time. They would not change. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in His Spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Why did they go into exile? Why did they go into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar? Why did thousands of Jews die? It had nothing to do because they were or were not fasting. They took the words of the Lord and threw it behind their back and said, we will do it our way. We'll go to the temple and say the prayers and do the fast. We'll go through the motions the way we feel like doing it. And God said, I punished you because you did not obey me. So verse 13, therefore it has come to pass that as he cried, oh, oh, please listen to verse 13. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. Did everybody get that? I fear we didn't. I, I, want you to, I want you to hear it again. It's come to pass that as he cried, who is he? That's the Lord. The Lord cried. He didn't just gently say it. He cried out to the people. He told that prophet, stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. God cried and they would not hear. So they cried. Now the people are praying and fasting, going, Oh God, help us, save us, save us. Nebuchadnezzar is killing us, he's taking us into slavery. God, help us. And God said, They're crying, and I would not hear. Do you see that? 
saith the Lord of hosts. Why isn't God hearing my prayers? Maybe you're not listening to Him. Maybe that's the problem. Verse 14, But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. The destruction came because God told you what to do. You paid no attention and went right on doing it the way you've always done it. Now, chapter 8, for the sake of time, I I understand this is a lot of reading. I'm going to just summarize. Verses 1 to 8, a prophecy comes in and says, guys, I know you've been through a rough time, but it's going to get a lot better. Verses 1 to 8, it's all about the millennium. It it has to do with the kingdom. The Messiah will come up. The streets will be inhabited. There'll be great joy. Verses 9 to 15. Now, that kingdom is way out in the future. Verses 9 to 15... He says, guys, even right now, you just got back from exile. Things are going to be pretty good for for right now. Compared to the last 70 years, you're going to enjoy these next few years a lot more. Now look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says, These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Stop doing what I hate. They came and asked a question, hey, should we keep fasting in the fifth month? God went on for the better part of two chapters about you're asking the wrong question. It has nothing to do with your religious ritual. He says in verse 18, And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love the truth and peace. He goes on to prophesy again about that kingdom time. Listen, when the Messiah will show up, he says, You won't have a reason to fast. There will be a time of joy and gladness. Now, this is the depth of Jesus' answer. When the disciples of John and of the Pharisees come, you can come back to Luke chapter 5 and say, hey, why are your disciples acting differently? Because the Messiah, the bridegroom, has shown up. It's a time for joy. Now, Jesus, listen, he's not against fasting. Right? He didn't tell his, his disciples just eat, drink, and be married. He taught them how to fast because there are special times when you should fast. But while the bridegroom is right there, this is the time to soak it in. This is the time to take in as much as you can from him. Verse 34, verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then shall they fast in those days. So as for now, what should we be doing? Well, if the bridegroom was right here with us, we would be having the marriage feast. We would be having a time of joy and cheer. And this would be a, we, we wouldn't, if not, not a time for mourning. You wouldn't even be praying. There he is face to face. But now that he has gone away, what should we be doing in these days? Well, according to verse 35, we should be fasting. So this is actually not a sermon about fasting in particular, but while we're talking about it, let me just mention Jesus does expect us to fast. I heard about a church just this week. Church in the States, they got about 400 people, so they're, you know, they have a, a, a bit more of a rotation. They can do this. At some point within the day, somebody's fasting in that church. All day, every day, all year. 
So somebody skips breakfast, the next guy will skip lunch, somebody else will skip dinner, and on it goes. They have a schedule so that during that time, somebody is praying and fasting. I don't know how many years they've been doing that, but they do that. Now, you know what I find is difficult about fasting? Not giving up food. Now, I, know, I know some of you are like, oh, no, no, that's, that's the hard part. That's the hard part. Giving up food, listen, I mean, it depends on how good of a cook your, your wife is. I mean, for some of you are like, please let me fast. But, <laughs> but the hard part of fasting is not actually giving up the food. It's instead of food, giving that extra time to prayer and to the Word of God. So the time when you would normally eat, rather go lock yourself away in your prayer closet, open your Bible, and commune with the Lord for that 45 minutes, that hour, however, I don't know how long it takes. For you guys, when you braai, you start the braai at what, 6 p.m., and by 10, the meat is on. I mean, you guys can go and go and go. And help yourself, I'm not condemning it, but rather than that, go ahead and give yourself to fasting and prayer in that time. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. For somebody to just go on with their life and never recognize the power and the necessity of fasting because it does help you win victory in the spiritual battle. This is something Jesus taught us. To ignore that fact and go on as if Jesus is not here and we don't need that extra help. I think the problem is you're not recognizing how real the spiritual battle is and and just how much you miss His presence not being physically right there in front of you. Now, verse 36, to the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to give them a parable. It's actually two metaphors within one parable to kind of reinforce the lesson he wants to get across. They have come and said, listen, we have been fasting for 600 years. Now your disciples aren't fasting. Why are you doing it differently? Why are you teaching your disciples to live different than our traditions? Jesus is now going to give them a parable to explain why. Verse 36, and he spake also a parable unto them, no man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old Otherwise, then both the new maketh the rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. So you don't take a piece of a new garment to fix an old garment. And then, in verse 37, no man putteth new wine into old bottles. And we're going to look more into that in just a moment. But the two parables, or two metaphors, are actually saying pretty much the same thing. You don't put a square peg in a round hole. Now, now, let's dig a little deeper into each of these parables because there's actually, he does drive it to one crescendo, to one final lesson, but there's a few, a few things we can learn as we go. In verse 36, no man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old. Well, why is that? Fabric, and, and please forgive me, I'm not a seamstress. I don't know, I don't know how to speak fabriques. I, I don't know how to talk about this stuff. So I'm going to hear this as a man speaking, okay, that knows nothing about sewing. But fabric needs time to settle. You guys, have you ever bought new, something, you know, a new shirt, new trousers, or, and, and it fits. It fits at, at the store. And then when you get it home and you wear it a little bit, it kind of stretches a bit, and that's okay, breaking it in. But then somebody washes it, and you put it on, and all of a sudden it shrunk. Yeah? 
Now, I don't know what it is about this, this vest. I bought it about a year and a half ago, and these trousers I got. It, 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 there's only one, one reason that these things are getting tighter, and it's because somebody washed them and it's shrinking. It's the only reason that these things are getting tighter. <laughs> I don't know how my wife shrunk my belt, but it's getting I don't know how she did that. <laughs> Fabric needs time to settle, right? It has some elasticity to it, you understand? So it can shrink, you can stretch it, but after a while it kind of settles into the way it's going to be. Does that make sense? Once that cloth, that fabric, that garment has been around a while, I think we all know this, we have clothes that we have broken in properly. I had a hat like that when I was a teenager. I wore it for about six years and never washed it. That thing, that thing, when I'd take it off, it just, it, you couldn't, you couldn't move it. <laughs> it was stuck in that position. It was, oh, that had had problems. But it was perfect. It fit perfectly. I had broken it in. That fabric was not moving. <laughs> it would never move. Now, what's Jesus' point here? If you're going to take a new garment, cut a piece out, and try to patch the old garment with it. What will eventually happen? Well, as you wear and wash that patched garment, the new piece of fabric might shrink when you wash it. And when it shrinks, it's going to pull away from the hole that you were trying to patch, thus creating an even bigger rip, you see. Furthermore, now think of this. If you got a new garment... Why would you mess up the new garment to fix the old one? Just put the new one on. <laughs> Do you see that in verse 36? He putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old. Well, come on, man. The new garment's right there. Just throw out the old one with the tear or cut it up and fix some other old garments or something. But it makes no sense to break up the new to try to patch the old. What's Jesus trying to tell them? Guys, I didn't come here to fix the Old Testament. I came here to give you a new one. I didn't come here to fix the Jewish nation. I came here to establish a church. I didn't come here to elevate the Jews and destroy the Romans and put the Israelites on the top of the world and make the Gentiles all slaves to the Jews. He says, that's not what I've come to do. I didn't come to try to patch up the old covenant. I've come to establish a brand new way of living. I didn't come to make you like Moses. I came to make you like me. I didn't show up like all the other prophets in the past. Have you noticed this as you read the, the Old Testament? After Moses preached and wrote, all the other prophets after him said, go read the law of Moses, follow the law of Moses, listen to what Moses said, right? That's all through the Old Testament. Jesus shows up and what does he say? Follow me. Now, you want to know about me? Go read Moses. Moses spoke about me. Right? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You go back in the Old Testament, it all comes back to me. Follow me, and I'll make you something brand new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Throw it out. Put off the old man. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You know what we often try to do? We take our, our way of thinking our life, this is how we've always done it. And when we meet Christ, we take one or two of Jesus' teachings and try to patch up the problems of our life. That's not what he came to do. He came to give you a brand new life, a way of thinking, a way of acting. The whole thing becomes new in him. 
Now that, I believe, is the goal of his first metaphor. At the end of verse 36, the peace that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. It just won't work together. You guys that were in discipleship, do you remember this, that we got to learn things within the context? If you take a verse and put it in the wrong context, it, it makes a mess. It's going to tear your Bible to pieces. You have to rightly divide it. I think that's the point. I'm not trying to take something new and stick it into the old. It's a brand new covenant. And doesn't the book of Hebrews say that when Jesus came, He made everything better? It's a better covenant, better promises, better hope, better Savior, better blood. The whole thing's better with Him. The old, He says in the book of Hebrews, is vanishing away. We're not trying to salvage it. Jesus came to fulfill it, to, to cap it off and say, here's something new. Verse 37, same type of thought, slightly different metaphor. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. They'll be destroyed, useless. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now, these bottles are not the kind of bottles you and I use today, right? We think bottle, we think a glass bottle. That's not what they were using back in the day. They had what we would know as a wine skin. Now, maybe you've seen them. They look very much like our offering bags, to be honest with you, but they were made of leather, of various animal skins, and they were quite large. It would take maybe two or three of these offering bags. These, these wine skins, I don't know, maybe almost half a meter, right? They could be quite large. And the process is you would fill, you put new wine, that's grape juice, into the wineskin, right? And, and to them, that's what they called a, a bottle. That was a bottle. So they'd pour it into this wineskin, and, and they would let it sit. They'd cap it up and let it sit. And the wine would begin, we read this in Proverbs chapter 23, it would begin to ferment. It would begin to stir itself. And when something starts to ferment, it gives off various gases, carbon dioxide, and things like that. And the bag, that, that wineskin, would begin to expand. Now, you can only use that animal skin one time. It can only expand one time to fit that new wine expanding and turning into old wine. Once it expands, it is now set in its ways. If you were to pour the wine out and put new wine in and start the process again, that next batch of wine, it will explode the bottle because that, that has now become a used old bottle. It does, it's not flexible enough to change with the new information. Do you see what Jesus is trying to get across to these guys? It's an excellent illustration for where they're at. They are set in their ways. We have an old garment. Now, Jesus, if you can come and patch a few things up on our old garment on the way, we want, the way we've been doing it, come and give us a new tradition. Just patch things up. Uh, Jesus, come. We have this old bottle. If you want to put a little bit of your wine in it, fine. But don't try to change our bottle. Don't try to change the way we've always done it. Jesus is trying to get across, guys, I brought something brand new. The old covenant was how the Jews could be different from the rest of the world and God would allow them to stay in the land. That's the old covenant. The new covenant, what's the new covenant about? Is the new covenant is all about you and I knowing God personally, having His words written in our hearts and minds. That's the new covenant. The new covenant has a new purpose. How many of you know this verse? Romans 8, verse 28. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. That purpose is a brand new bottle. Jesus expects you to have enough flexibility in your heart and mind that when he puts that new wine into you, here's a new purpose, a new covenant, a new goal. I want you to walk with God. I want you to know him personally. How do you walk with him closely? How do you have good fellowship? You become more like his son. You follow in the footsteps of his son. So what's the goal now? Watch, watch how this works. What, what's the goal? To become like Christ and help others become like Christ. Any behavior that doesn't fit within that purpose, within that bottle, it needs to go. Why am I fasting? This is where people, they start to underappreciate why they should read the Bible every day. Why should they pray? Why should you come to church all the time? Why be active within the body of Christ? Why is all of that so important? Because it's accomplishing that purpose that he has for us. And if we don't understand the purpose, that new wine that's been put in, if we're trying to put it into an old bottle, an old way of thinking, boom, you get confused. And you go, I don't get it. This is frustrating. I don't like this. This is, this is different. That's the point. You don't want to be that old, craggly bottle that's been bloated out once, and now there's no more room for change. Where Jesus comes in and says, hey, as my disciple, this is what I expect from you. I want certain things to change in your life. And people, they pull their shoulder away, they stop their ears, and they go, that's not the way we've done it. For a while, Botma, I'm going to blame this on Botma, he, he taught me how to make kombucha tea. How many of you like kombucha tea? How many of you know what that is? Okay, you've probably seen it in Discam and these... Uh, new age health stores and stuff. <laughs> this kombucha tea, it's fermented tea. And I must admit, I, I've tried a few flavors of it and I didn't mind it so much, but Botma was making some and he said, hey, would you like to try making some? I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. I enjoy cooking and all of that stuff, so I'll give it a shot. Now, fermented tea, there's a special, I call it an ingredient, I guess. It's called a scoby. You have to have a scoby. Anybody know what a scoby is? Okay, a couple of you, so we're, I'm, I'm, I'm learning you something new today, all right? A scoby looks like something that belongs in a Petri dish. It's when you have this big jug of tea, then you put this scoby in. The scoby is a, a living organism. It's bacteria and yeast that has come together. I actually have the scoby as an acronym, Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. That's scoby. So it looks like if you took 10 jellyfish and squished them all together and ripped off, it even has the tentacles. I mean, it's, that thing grows in your tea. So you put the tea in, you put the scoby in, you lock it down with the lid and you let it, you let it ferment. And the tea begins to ferment, it begins to move itself aright and it gets kind of weird. Now, you don't want to put a lid on it because otherwise, it, it, if it ferments, it can't grow. It can't you know, expand. So you've got to put just a cloth on. It gives it a little room to breathe. But then after it's fermented enough, you pour it into individual bottles. And then you let it sit for the second fermentation, and then after that, you can drink it whenever you're ready. As you pour it into these individual bottles, a little bit of the SCOBY 
sneaks into each bottle. So you, you have these floaties. <laughs> and they grow. So you check on it, and it takes, what, two, three weeks for the entire process? You can watch it. It's like a science experiment growing in your cupboard. It's kind of cool. <laughs> so I had a batch of it going. I had, I don't know, 20 bottles or something like that worth in just you know, the, with the 500 mil bottles, you know, nothing big. But I had about 20 of those, and uh, I'm letting them the second fermentation. But now I put a cork in it, right? So it's already in the big batch. It's fermented quite a bit, and now I expect it to just ferment a little. So I put the cork in all the bottles and let it sit. One day I'm sitting in my living room, not, you know, I'm just minding my own business, and boom! I mean, a huge bang. Listen, we're in South Africa. When there's a massive explosion in your house, your first thought is, oh, I'm going to see Jesus. That's, uh, that's your first thought, right? Is that, that's it for me. Somebody's in the house. I don't know why they're shooting in my kitchen because no one's in there, but they shot up my kitchen and now they're coming for me. I, I rushed into the kitchen and sure enough, there is kombucha everywhere. I opened up, I had it in it. You have to store it in a... In a, a closet type area, you know, in a dark space, so I had it in a cupboard. Those of you that have been in my house in that little coffee station, underneath there, I had it down there. I opened it up, and you could see it was leaking out all over the floor. I opened it up. There was glass everywhere. It had exploded that glass bottle. That's, the scoby that was in it was just maybe, maybe a centimeter big, but as that grew, boom, that whole thing, it had no room to grow. That glass bottle was so set in its ways, it was not flexible enough to take in the new information as the scoby grew. Are you getting my point? You can get so rigid. I don't want to learn anything new. This is how I've always done it. And then what will happen is Christ will come to you and tap on your heart and say, hey, I'd like, I'd like for this to change. I want you to become more like me. So this needs to go. I want you to do it this way. And you say, oh, now you've gone too far. Jesus, uh, listen, I'm, I'm fine to just put a few patches on my life. I, I accepted you and I, I let you into my life so that you could make my life better. I wanted you to make me a better version of me. Jesus says, that's not what I came to do. I didn't come to put a few, few patches on you. I came to change you. I came to make you a new creature. I came to give you a new birth. I came to give you a new mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. He says, I want you to think differently. And as you grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be an old bottle. So stiff and rigid. You've got to be able to expand because as the knowledge of Christ accumulates in you, as it expands, you're going to have to move with it. And if you don't, boom, eventually you'll end up angry with the Lord. You'll end up in a garden going, why, Jesus? Why would you tell me to put my sword away? It doesn't make any sense. It's time to fight. It's time to protect you. He says, put it away. It's not time to fight. It's time to pray. But I don't fix my problems with prayer. I fix my problems with human ingenuity and with hard work. And I pull out my sword. Peter, 
put it away. You fix this with prayer. That's not the way I want to do it. And then you find yourself with the people of the world. Do you know this man? No, I don't know this man. And all of a sudden, your discipleship has gone flat. The bottle burst. It was too much to take in. When you come to Christ, you're coming to Him not to become a better version of you. Be the best you that you can be. For those of you that are initiated, you know who that is. (laughs) The best version of you. We don't want the best version of you. The idea is to conform you to the image of Christ. Watch this. Watch. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. And then some tragedy happens. And you go, God, I do not see how this could be good. It's because you're not looking at it through the lens of His purpose. Whatever that hardship is, God can use it to make you more like Christ. That's His purpose. The reason those tragedies break us, burst our bottles, and all the wine leaks out and we go, forget it, I don't want to follow Christ anymore, is because we have failed to realize now that the bridegroom is in my life, He changes everything. He changes my purpose. He's not here to fulfill my dreams and wishes. He came to make me more like Him so that I can get along with God. And anything, good or bad, that happens in my life that can make me more like Christ, that's now good. So even the bad things become good things. Otherwise, if you're that old, stiff bottle, you'll end up broken. I hear it all the time. I'll witness to a black man, and he'll say, you know, that's just not my culture. Jesus didn't come to make black men blacker. But Jesus didn't come to make Bursians better Bursians. I'm an American. There are no Americans anymore. We're American. I'm American. American. It's a brand new word. Jesus didn't come to make you better Americans. It's certainly not you. (laughs) He didn't come to make black people blacker, to make white people whiter. He came to make Christian people more like Christ. I'll end with this thought. Jesus did not come to patch up your life. He came to give you His. He is to be your life. Not a part of your life. Get the language right on this. He didn't come to be the most important part of your life. Because then that's just taking a a big piece of new cloth and trying to fix part of your old ways. Putting it on the old man. We don't need that. The old man needs to go. We need a brand new creature. He came to be your life. What did He say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. Your bottle needs to be big enough. It needs to expand to make room for that thought, for His image to grow in you. Paul said it best, Philippians 1, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
He says, I count all things but loss that I may gain the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the new wine. We don't need, yes, yes, the old man is going to say the old wine's better because that's what we're used to. Oh, but taste and see that the Lord is good. Let that new wine in and let it start to grow. Be flexible enough. Remember, things must change. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees, Connie will play something just now. Thank you for that, though. Heads bowed and eyes closed. The disciples of John and the Pharisees, they might have had good intentions. It's not like they were trying to do a bad thing when they fasted. But they didn't realize that if the Messiah is here, we can't just keep on doing what we've always done. We go to Him and let Him tell us what to do now. It's a very simple thought. He told them, guys, I'm here to give you something new, not to reinforce the old. Now make room for me in your thinking. Make room for me in your heart. Don't be an old bottle. My challenge to you this morning, we're just going to pray for a few moments now, but my challenge to you is maybe rededicate your heart and mind. I'll use the biblical word, renew your mind. And say, God, I want my mind to be a new bottle, not an old one. I want to be flexible. As you grow within me, I want to move with that and take on the shape you give me. Maybe this morning you say to him, Lord, I just want you to know you are my life. Not a part of it. You are my life. Everything hinges on you. Father, we want to acknowledge this morning that we don't have it figured out. We're all still learning. And we want to be moldable, flexible. Just like the clay, we want the potter's hands on us shaping us into what we need to be. We don't want to get dry and old, set in our ways. So Lord, we, we commit ourselves to You. If there's anything going on in our lives, religious, secular, family, whatever it is, You show us what to do with it. We want to be followers of You. Lord, it's so easy for us to do what we've always done. It's just familiar. It's comfortable. 
It's easy. Help us, Lord, to be bold enough to take up your cross. Be different. Help us to change. Father, we thank you for speaking to us this morning, letting us spend time with you and with each other. Please have your hand upon us as we go through the rest of our day now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for your time.